Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. Today's sermon was given by guest preacher, Rev. Dr. Ken Green. If you'd like to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the second book of Samuel, chapter 7, verses 4 through 18, verse 21, and verses 24 through 26, which you will find in your Old Testament section of our Pew Bibles, beginning on page 285, or on the screen. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. O oh God, who guides and shepherds us, you anointed Jesus as the King and servant of your people. Help us attend to your word that we may follow your will and worship you alone. Amen. A little background on the passage we're going to be reading. King David had a concern, and he went to Nathan the prophet and asked, What am I doing living in a house of cedar when the Ark of the Covenant is housed in a tent? And Nathan said, I see what you're saying. I know the Lord is with you. Go ahead and correct that situation. 2 Samuel 7, verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt and to this day but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. 
Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings, but I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Verse 21. And you established your people Israel for yourself to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became our God. And now, O Lord God, as for the word that you have spoken concerning your servant David, and concerning his house, confirm it forever. Do as you have promised. Thus, your name will be magnified forever in the saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. This is the word of the Lord. Have you heard of me, the mighty King David? I see some of you have. I was king over the united 12 tribes of Israel, and I was their greatest king. I mean, my son Solomon, some of you have heard of him, was perhaps more wise and more wealthy but I was still the greatest, if I do say so myself, and I do. Do you know where my story is found? In the Tanakh, the Nevi'im, the prophets? Yes, in your Old Testament? Well, you've just heard a portion of it. Todd read it for you very well. And in that story, in, in the section before that, in other parts of Samuel's writings, you can read about my youth. As a boy, I tended the sheep of my father. I was a shepherd who protected the flock from predators and marauders. And then, as a young man, I protected God's flock, the people of Israel, from the predatorial Philistines. Yes, and their champion from Gath, 
I see some of you have heard of him as well. Goliath, yes, the story, five smooth stones, it only took one. And Scripture tells of these stories uh, of my youth and then uh, how I became king. But I'm not really here to talk about me. I'm here to tell you about a promise that God made to me when I became king, the section that Verna read for you. But I want you to know about that promise, the promise to send a son, a special child to be born into my family who would save his people and all people. Yes, this special child would have a name that in Hebrew means God saves. Yes, Yeshua, Jesus, you've heard of him as well. And that special child born into my family, that was the promise that God made to me personally. Well, I can't resist. I need to, to read a portion of that. And again, it was from the prophet Nathan, the portion that Verna read, but just my little favorite piece. I will raise up an offspring after you, a child who shall come forth from your body, my body, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Isn't that a great promise? And so how did God keep God's promise? Did I live forever? No, but I had a front row seat to watch events unfold from heaven as God made good on God's promise. I even wrote a psalm about the promise. I was so excited about it. I wrote it that my people could sing on their way up to Mount Zion as they ascended to the temple for the holy days. Let me read a portion of that to you as well. Psalm 132. The Lord swore to David, me, a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And if your sons keep my covenant and my decrees that I shall teach them, their sons also forevermore shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. And here I will reside, says the Lord, for I have desired it. What a remarkable promise. And so the people sang that as they ascended to Mount Zion. And I can tell you that all of God's promises came true. That promise that God made to me was a covenant a royal word for a great big God-sized promise that only God could make happen. And how did it unfold? Well, that's a long story, but let me provide you with a little context. After my reign was over, when I went to rest with my ancestors, things got hard for my people. Very hard. In my kingdom, the United Twelve Tribes, were divided north and south. And then in 722, the Assyrian Empire swept in from the north, taking captive most of the northern kingdom of Israel. 586 B.C., the uh, after the Assyrians, the Babylonians came in from the east, occupied 
the southern kingdom of Judah, took them, the best and the brightest, captive back to Babylon. Same story, second chapter. Sounds the same, doesn't it? And then, a couple hundred years later, the people had been set free. God used Cyrus of Persia, and some of the captives came back. They rebuilt the temple. And then, the first century, the Roman Empire came in, tore the temple down again. Oy vey, it was a bad millennium. My people were waiting for that special child, the Savior, to come and save them. Do you know what it's like to wait for a long, long time? When life is hard and the waiting is difficult and you're not sure how it will play out. So my people waited and prayed. They waited on their feet, ready to run for the freedom that had been promised them. They waited on their knees, praying, O Lord, how long? O come, O come. They waited with their eyes wide open, watching for any sign of that special child, the Savior, to come and save them. And then, there was a sign. And it was seen by wise men from the east from Persia, from where Cyrus had come from. And that sign was a star. It foretold of the birth of a king in Bethlehem, my royal city. The wise men came to see this thing, and while they were still on the way, the child arrived. And angels came and announced the birth to the only audience that was there. Shepherds, but shepherds on the night shift, coming in to hear, to see what this star meant and what the angels, the noise they heard, singing glory to God in the highest with peace, the people on earth with whom he's pleased. And yet what they found was a child laid in a food trough. His parents had been on the road, and the only room they could find was a cataluma above the sheep pen. And they wondered, how could this child, born in these humble circumstances, be a mighty king who would live forever? Even so, I could not have been more proud. For he was indeed from my family. But like the others, I was confused. I'll admit, why was he not born in a palace? Why, during his earthly life, was he never proclaimed king? I mean, he had the parade where he entered the holy city once, people shouting, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, but not the kingship I envisioned. But God assured me continually that God would be faithful to God's promises. Uh, that promise, that covenant that only God could make happen. In your scriptures, your New Testament, in the good news 
books. The one written by that Roman tax collector, Matthew. He, with imperial precision, writes of Jesus' genealogy, beginning with Father Abraham. 27 times my great-grandfather, Abraham, and then me, King David, and then 14 more greats, generations, to my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Jesus. And in the midst of that list, I was the greatest. Well, until Jesus. And yes, I, I guess it's important to admit right now, for all my self-assuredness, please hear this. Jesus' greatness far surpassed my own. Now, yes, I was king. I fought wars. I won battles. I enlarged our kingdom. I brought security and prosperity to my people. The golden age of Judah, they called my reign. But along the way, I made a few mistakes. Some whoppers, to be sure. And in that genealogy that Matthew records was perhaps my greatest mistake and my greatest love. Bathsheba is listed in that genealogy. And one thing that still causes my royal blood pressure to rise, she is listed as the wife of Uriah. I guess I had that coming. She was the wife of Uriah before she became my wife. You should have heard what the prophet Nathan had to say about that one. Well, even with those mistakes, God was able to use those mistakes and weave them into the tapestry of God's promise. And not just my mistakes, but others. If you read in that genealogy, there are some surprising characters. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. Ruth, a Moabite widow who married the son of the Canaanite prostitute, Boaz. I mean, it's a remarkable genealogy of God's faithfulness. Well, as I was saying, there were 41 levels of greatness between Abraham and Jesus. And there was I in the midst, perhaps the greatest sinner, which God forgave my wandering heart. In fact, God called me a man after God's own heart. I never did anything halfway. And yet God's forgiveness was extended to me as he extends it to all who sin and repent. And Jesus, the end of that genealogy, the greatest king, far greater than I, But what made him so great? Well, he was the fulfillment of all of the prophecies, of the promises that God made to put a son of mine on his throne forever. And he was a king, and yet not just a king to relieve them from the imperial oppression of Rome, but to relieve them of their sin and death. And you don't have to be dead like me to experience God's power. 
God was at work in and through Jesus and through us. That's the part that surprises me. And you hear about it in your scriptures, in the letters from that Pharisee, Saul. See, God's plan was much bigger. And Saul, Paul, the apostle, talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that you may come to know the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he was raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, for his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians teaches us that Jesus, the great king of this age and the age to come, is more than just someone we contemplate as we enter into this season of waiting, of Advent. We learn that all will be put under Jesus' authority and dominion. We learn that Jesus is powerful on behalf of the church for the sake of creation, and that we have a central role to play in that coming kingdom. We are part of God's promise and plan as well. And as King David, an authority on greatness, want to tell you without question that this is great news. That in Advent, as we anticipate the coming of the great king, we wait for Jesus who will come as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and a king who will rule forever and come and set all things to right, a king who will rule with justice. Let's hear more about that from Matthew's gospel again, that imperial tax collector. Pastor Tassie. So from Matthew 25, he describes this situation from our lectionary for today. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and... He will separate people from one another as a sheep separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw a stranger and you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. 
Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into internal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. It's a portrait of a different kind of king, isn't it? but a great king, nevertheless, and a king who will come and execute justice and bring about the end of this world and initiate a new one in which there will be a new heaven and a new earth and God's city will be in its midst. In fact, that's described several ways, but in the end of your New Testament, also by a writer of the good news, John in this case, who also wrote a revelation and talks about those things. Revelation, the end of the scriptures describes the coming king this way. I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The King of Kings. I could say so much more about him. I'm amazed and humbled that I would be able to call him a part of my family. And in this season, when we anticipate the coming of the great King, who am I to do anything but worship at his feet? with the elders and the angels falling on their knees before him, the King of Kings. In the season of Advent, I invite you to do as well, do the same. Join me as we anticipate the coming of the great King and prepare to worship him.